it. It looks like blood. Coming from under his door. You're right. Stop, sir. Stand out of the way while I put the shoulders with you. Stand back. back. Fresh turn of events pose some new problem in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I'm Watson, Dr. Watson, and I've already told you how Holmes and I met and became involved in our first case together, the study in Scarlet. I'll just get my notes and then I'll refresh your memory and I'll tell you what happened next. Study in Scarlet was how my friend Mr. Sherlock Holmes had described our investigation into the murder of the American Enoch J. Drebber in an empty house near the Brixton Road. Certainly my mind kept returning to the scarlet of that blood in which some unknown finger had dipped to write on a wall above the dead man the one word Rach, the German for revenge. Revenge for what? And by whom? So I mused as I cleaned my old service revolver and waited with Holmes for the arrival of a claimant to the woman's wedding ring, which had been found near the body. Put your pistol in your pocket. When the fellow comes, speak to him in an ordinary way. Leave the rest to me. Don't frighten him by looking at him too hard. He'll probably be here in a few minutes. Now, open the door slightly. Oh, well. That will do. Now, put the key on the inside. Here comes our man, I think. Quickly, with the key. Right, we got. Now, listen. Lodgings at three, my field place, Peckham. 
And your name is... Uh... My name is Sawyer. Sawyer's is Dennis. A rich Tom Dennis married her. And a smart, clean lad, too. As long as he's at sea. And no steward in the company more thought of. But when I'm sure, what with the women and the liquor shops... Um, give it to her. Uh, here's your ring, Mrs. Sawyer. It uh, clearly belongs to your daughter. And I'm glad to be able to restore it to the rightful owner. If he could have come home and found her without it, I, I don't know what he might have done. Thank you, good gentleman. Oh, my poor Sally, what will she say? Uh, good night to you, Mrs. Sawyer. Uh, good night to you, sir. I'll follow her. She must be an accomplice. She'll lead me to it. Wait up for me, what? I wouldn't have the Scotland Yarders know it for the world, Watson. Well, They'd never let me hear the end of it. Oh, what is it, Holmes? Where, where have you been? It's just gone midnight. Oh, I don't mind telling a story against myself. That creature had gone a little way when she hailed a four-wheeler which was passing. Drive to 13 Duncan Street, Helmstitch, she cried. This begins to look genuine, I thought. And having seen her safely inside, I perched myself behind. You perched yourself? Huh? Oh, that's an art which every detective should be an expert at. Well, away we rattled and never drew rein until we reached the street in question. I hopped off before we came to the door and strolled down the street in an easy, lounging way. I saw the cab pull up. The driver jumped down, and I saw him open the door and stand expectantly. Nothing came after. What? When I reached him, he was groping about frantically in the empty cab and giving vent to the finest assorted collection of oaths that I ever listened to. <laughs> there was no sign or trace of his passenger, and I fear it'll be some time before he gets his fare. On inquiring at number 13, we found that no one of the name either Sawyer or Dennis had ever been heard of there. But you don't mean to say that that tottering, feeble old woman was able to get out of the cab while it was in motion without either you or the driver seeing her? Old woman be damned. We were the old women to be so taken in. Oh, oh. Must have been a young man, and an active one, too. Besides being an incomparable actor, the get-up was inimitable. Oh, oh. He saw that he was followed, no doubt, and used this means of giving me the slip. It shows that the man we're after is not as lonely as I imagined he was, but has friends who are ready to risk something for him. Mm. Now, Doctor, you're looking done up. As you say, it's gone midnight. Take my advice and turn in. Yes, I, I think I will. <clears throat> you turning in, too? Mm. Oh, not yet a while, I fear. Good night. There's a strange problem still to unravel. Very strange problem indeed. Well, Holmes, the papers are certainly full of it today. The Brixton Mystery, they're calling it. Well, in that case, my dear Watson, pray post me up while I demolish this fourth egg. Oh, very well, Holmes. The deceased was an American gentleman who'd been residing for some weeks in the metropolis. He'd stayed at the boarding house of Madame Charpentier in Torquay Terrace, Camberwell. He was accompanied in his travels by his private secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The two bear adieu to their landlady upon Tuesday the 4th inst and departed to Euston Station with the avowed intention of catching the Liverpool Express. 
They were afterwards seen together upon the platform. Nothing more is known of them until Mr. Drebber's body was, as recorded, discovered in an empty house in the Brixton Road, many miles from Euston. We're glad to learn that Mr. Lestrade and Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard are both engaged upon the case, and it is confidently anticipated that these well-known officers will speedily throw light upon the matter. I told you that whatever happened to Lestrade and Gregson would be sure to score. Well, that depends on how it turns out. <laughs> oh, bless you, it doesn't matter in the least. If the man is caught, it'll be on account of their exertions. If he escapes, it'll be in spite of their exertions. Oh, it's heads I win and tails you lose. Oh, what on earth is that? It's the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force. The what? Dan Trump. Come along now, get into line quickly. In future, you will send up Wiggins alone to report, and the rest of you must wait in the street. Now, have you found it, Wiggins? No, sir, we ain't. I hardly expected you would. You must keep on until you do, though. But here are your wages. Now, off you go, and come back with a better report next time. Yes, sir. Come on, all of you. Double march. <laughs> There's more work to be got out of one of those little beggars than out of a dozen of the force. Are you employing them on this Brixton case, then? Yes. There's a point which I wish to ascertain. It's merely a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Oh, Inspector Gregson, come in. Mr. Holmes, congratulate me. I mean, the whole thing is clear as day. You mean that you were on the right track? The right track? Well, we have the man under lock and key. And his name is? Arthur Charpentier, sub-lieutenant in Her Majesty's Navy. <sighs> well, uh, take a seat and well, try one of these cigars. Thank you. We're anxious to know how you managed it. <laughs> the fun of it is that that fool Lestrade who thinks himself so smart has gone off upon the wrong track altogether. He's after the secretary, Sangerson, who had no more to do with the crime than the babe unborn. And how did you get your clue, Gregson? You remember the hat beside the dead man? Yes, by John Underwood and Sons, 129 Camberwell Road. Oh, I had no idea you'd notice that. Well, I went to Underwood and asked him if he'd sold a hat of that size and description. He looked over his books and came on it at once. He had sent a hat to Mr. Drebber, residing at Charpentier's boarding establishment, Torquay Terrace. Thus, I got at his address. Smart. Very smart. I next called upon Madame Charpentier. I found her very pale and distressed. Her daughter was in the room, too, an uncommonly fine girl she is, I may add. Before I even started the question, I felt that these people knew something about the matter. Have you heard of the mysterious death of your late boarder, Mr. Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland? Oh, there, there, now, dear. Yes, sir, we have heard about it. At uh, what o'clock did Mr. Drebber leave your house for the train? At 8 o'clock, his secretary, Mr. Sanderson, said there were two trains, one at 9.15 and one at 11. He was to catch the first. And that was the last you saw of him? <laughs> Madam, I asked whether it was the last you saw of him. Yes, yes, it was. Oh, oh Mother... Mother, no good can ever come of falsehood. We did see Mr. Drebber again, sir. Oh, you, you've murdered your brother. But Arthur would rather we spoke the truth. You'd best tell me all about it. 
Half confidences are worse than none. Besides, you uh, you don't know how much we know already. Oh, your head be it, Alice. Oh. Perhaps you'd better leave us together. Yes, Mother. <laughs> now, sir, I had no intention of telling you all this, but since my poor daughter disclosed it, I have no alternative. Having once decided to speak, I will tell you all without omitting any particular. It's your wisest course, madam. Mr. Drebber had been with us nearly three weeks. He and his secretary, Mr. Stangerson, had been traveling on the continent. Yes. Mr. Stangerson was a quiet, reserved man. Oh, but his employer, I'm sorry to say, was far otherwise. He, he was coarse in his habits and brutish in his ways. How so? But the very night of his arrival, he became very much the worse for drink. And indeed, after 12 o'clock in the daytime, he could hardly ever be said to be sober. But his manner towards the maidservant was disgustingly free and familiar. And worst of all, he assumed the same attitude towards my daughter... And spoke to her more than once in a way which, fortunately, she's too innocent to understand. But on one occasion, he actually seized her in his arms and embraced her. Oh, his own secretary reproached him for it. But why did you stand all this? I suppose you can get rid of your borders when you wish. Would to God I'd given him notice on the very day he came. But it was a sore temptation. They were paying a pound a day each, and this is the slack season. I am a widow, and my boy in the Navy has cost me much. I, I acted for the best. This last was too much, however, and I gave him notice to leave on account of it. I see. Oh, my heart grew light as I saw him drive away. My son is on leave just now, but I did not tell him anything of all this. His temper is violent, and he's passionately fond of his sister. Well, when I closed the door behind them, a load seemed to be lifted from my mind. Yeah. Oh, alas, in less than an hour, there was a ring at the bell, and I learned that Mr. Drebber had returned. He was the worse for drink. He forced his way into the room where I was sitting with my daughter and made some incoherent remark about having missed his train. He then turned to Alice and before my very face proposed to her that she should fly with him. You are of age, he said, and there's no law to stop you. I have money and enough to spare. Never mind the old girl here, but come along with me now straight away. You shall live like a princess. Oh, mm. Uh, go on. Poor Alice was so frightened that she shrank away from him. But, but he caught her by the wrist. Well, I screamed. And at that moment, my son Arthur came into the room. What happened then? I, I do not know. I heard oaths and confused sounds of a scuffle. I was too terrified to raise my head. And when I did look up, I saw Arthur standing in the doorway laughing with a stick in his hand. I don't think that fine fellow will trouble us again, he said. I will just go after him and see what he does with himself. And with those words, he took his hat and started off down the street. 
The next morning, we heard of Mr. Drebber's mysterious death. Madame Charpentier, at what hour did your son return? I do not know. He has a latchkey and he let himself in. After you went to bed? Yes. When did you go to bed? About 11. So your son was gone at least two hours? Yes. Possibly four or five? Yes. What was he doing during that time? I... I do not know, sir. I do not know. I found out where Lieutenant Charpentier was and arrested him. When I touched him on the shoulder and warned him to come quietly with us, he answered us as bold as brass, I suppose you are arresting me for being concerned in the death of that scoundrel Drebber. We said nothing to him about it, so that his alluding to it had a most suspicious aspect. Very. He still carried the heavy stick which the mother described as having with him when he followed Drebber. Uh, what's your theory then, Inspector Gregson? Well, Mr. Holmes, my theory is that he followed Drebber as far as the Brixton Road. When there, some occasion arose between them, and in the course of which, Drebber received a blow from the stick in the pit of the stomach, perhaps, which killed him without leaving any mark. The night was so wet that no one was about, so Charpentier dragged the body of his victim into the empty house. As to the candle and the blood and the writing on the wall and the ring, they may all have been so many tricks to throw the police under the wrong scent. Well done. Really, Gregson, you're getting along. We shall make something of you yet. Well, I flatter myself that I've managed it rather neatly. The young man volunteered a statement in which he said that after following Drebber for some time, the latter perceived him and took a cab in order to get away from him. On his way home, Charpentier met an old shipmate and took a long walk with him. On being asked where this old shipmate lived, he was unable to give any satisfactory reply. Yes, I think the whole case fits together uncommonly well. <laughs> what amuses me is to think of Lestrade, who had started off upon the wrong scent. Uh, I'm afraid he won't make much of it. Why, by Jove, here's the very man himself. <laughs> Come in, Inspector Lestrade. Oh, so you're here, Gregson. I suppose, Lestrade, you've come to consult Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Ask him what move to make next, eh? Well, I don't mind admitting this is a most extraordinary case, most incomprehensible affair. Ah, you find it so? I thought you'd come to that conclusion. Have you managed to land the secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson? I've just come from Stangerson's room. Ah. We've been hearing Gregson's view of the matter. Would you mind letting us know what you've done, Lestrade? No, Mr. Holmes, no objections at all. I freely confess that I was of the opinion that Stangerson was concerned in the death of Drebber. Was? A fresh development has shown me that I was completely mistaken. Well, well. Um, I fancy we'd better take the events in their sequence. Very well. Full of the one idea, I set myself to discover what had become of the secretary. He and Drebber had been seen together at Euston Station about half past eight on the evening of the third. At two in the morning of the fourth, Drebber had been found murdered in the house of... Brixton Road. Uh, the question which confronted me was to find out how Stangerson had been employed between 8.30 and the time of the crime and what had become of him afterwards. I telegraphed to Liverpool, giving a description of the man and warning him to keep a watch upon the American boats. 
I then set to work calling upon all the hotels and lodging houses in the vicinity of Euston. You see, I argued that if Drebber and his companion had become separated that evening, the natural course for Stangerson would be to put up somewhere in the vicinity for the night, then to hang about the station again next morning to look out for his employer. They'd be likely to agree on some meeting place beforehand. Oh, so it proved. I spent the whole of yesterday evening making inquiries entirely without avail. This morning, I began very early, and at eight o'clock, I reached Halliday's Hotel in Little George Street. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like to know whether Mr. Stangerson's living here. Oh, certainly, sir. Ah. No doubt you're the gentleman he was expecting. He's been waiting here for a gentleman for two days. Ah, yes, sir. Where is he now? He's upstairs in bed. He wished to be called at nine. Well, I'll go up and see him at once, sir. Yes, sir. The boots will take you. Uh, boots? Yes? Good oh, morning, sir. Morning. Take this gentleman up to Mr. Stangerson's room. Yes. Would you follow me, sir? There's his room, sir, just along here. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Oh. Cool. What's that? It looks like blood. Coming from under his door. Oh, you're right. Stop, sir. Turn out of the way while I put the shoulders with. Sir, I'll get back. Stabbed to the heart. Dead for some time. He bled profusely. Now, but now comes the strangest part of the affair, Miss Rhodes. What do you suppose was on the wall? The word Racha, written in letters of blood. But that was it. Great. Get on with the details, Lestrade. Well, the murderer was seen. A milk boy happened to walk down the lane at the back of the hotel. He noticed that a ladder, which usually lay there, was raised against one of the windows of the second floor, which was wide open. He looked back and saw a man descend the ladder. He came down so openly that the lad imagined him to be some carpenter or joiner at work. Took no notice beyond thinking it was early for anyone like that to be at work. And he had an impression that the man was tall, had a reddish face, and was dressed in a long brownish coat. Did you find anything in the room which could furnish a clue to the murderer? Nothing. Stankerson had 80 odd pounds in his pocket. Whatever the motive for these two crimes, it certainly wasn't robbery. There were no papers in the pockets, except a telegram, dated from Cleveland about a month ago, containing the words, J.H. is in Europe. There was no sender's name. And there was nothing else? Nothing of any importance. His pipe was on the chair beside the bed. There was a glass of water on the table. And on the windowsill, a, a small chip ointment box containing a couple of pills. What? At last! What's that, Mr. Holmes? The last link! My case is complete. Oh, just what do you mean, Mr. Holmes? I have now in my hands all the threads which have formed such a tangle. There are, of course, details to be filled in, but I'm as certain of all the main facts. From the time that Trevor parted from Stangerson at the station after the discovery of Stangerson's body, as if I'd seen them with my own eyes. I'll give you proof of my knowledge. Uh, could you lay your hand upon those pills, Lestrade? Yes, I have them here. <laughs> I could attach any importance to them, though. Let me see them. Doctor, hmm? are those ordinary pills? No, no, they're certainly not. Pearly grey colour, small, round, and... Uh, let's see. 
Yes, almost transparent against the light. From their lightness and transparency, I should imagine they're soluble in water. Precisely, sir. Now, would you mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier, which has been bad so long and which the landlady wanted you to put out of his pain yesterday? Oh, yes, well, Holmes. What are you going to do, Mr. Holmes? I will now cut one of these pills in two. One half we return into the box for future purposes. The other half I will place in this wine glass. If you'd be kind enough to pass me the carafe, Lestrade. Yes, here you are. Thank you. Now then, I pour into the glass a teaspoonful of water. Ah. You perceive that our friend the doctor is right. The pill readily dissolves. I shall now add a little milk to make the mixture palatable. Ah, <clears throat> oh, here he is, poor old chap. <clears throat> Long past his allotted span, I'm afraid. <laughs> Put him down on a cushion while I transfer this mixture to a saucer. Right. Now, poor old boy, here's a little drink for you. Well? It, it can't be a coincidence. The very pills which I suspected in the case of Drebber are actually found after the death of Stangerson, and, and yet they're inert. What did it mean? Oh, surely my whole chain of reasoning cannot have been false. No, 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 it's impossible. And yet this wretched dog is none the worse. Well, if you ask me... Wait. Ah, uh, oh, I have it. Where's that other pill? Yeah, well. Cut it in two for me while I get more milk and water ready. Now, in it goes. You mean you're going to try again? Precisely. Now, oh, boy. Try another first ever story of Sherlock Holmes from the inspired pen of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We are presenting it in three parts, and you have just heard part two. My real name is Norman Shelley. It was my friend Carlton Hobbs who played Sherlock Holmes. I was Dr. Watson. Michael Hardwick wrote the script for this BBC production from London. Of course, I look forward to the pleasure of your company again very soon for part three of a study in Scarlet.